from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And there's a bunch to discuss tonight. Uh, one of the things I want to get into is we're going to talk a little bit about um, Dr. Anthony Fauci a little bit later in the program. Uh, he's making claims that it's the Republicans that are attacking him because of his honesty. After all, he is the science. Then whoo, we've got uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen getting grilled uh, up on Capitol Hill today, and we're going to get to we have a bunch of audio of that. Really, really good stuff. And uh, we'll give you, you know, our opinions and you can weigh in with your opinions as well. If you want to join the show at any point, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, 833-482-5337. And a member of Congress is demanding the resignation of the Attorney General Merrick Garland over the prosecution of a creator of a meme. And I want to dig into that one because I think this is pretty bizarre, right? Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, she wrote a letter on Wednesday calling for criminal charges against a man uh, who posted a meme for those charges to be dropped and for U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to resign. I think she's 100 percent right. The guy's named Douglas Mackey. We talked about it on this program. He goes by Ricky Vaughn. And he's facing criminal charges for posting a meme instructing voters casting ballots for the 2016 election to vote via text which is not actually possible, right? And and this is according to a piece in the Post-Millennial. And I remember at the time we talked about this on the show, I, I went on to say, I hope they don't arrest me because every year on election day, uh, take two, every year on election day, I make the same joke. And the joke that I make is, listen, if you're a Republican, vote on Tuesday, which is election day. If you're a Democrat, vote on Wednesday. And I every year since I've been old enough to vote, I've made this joke. Nobody's ever put me in jail, thank God. This guy makes a very similar joke, and all of a sudden, they're, they're trying to put this guy in jail for a joke, a meme that he created on the Internet, saying that this was a misinformation, election interference, whatever. Meanwhile, Twitter's done a whole lot of that, right? And nobody's getting in trouble for that. Anyway, in Green's letter, she writes, I write to you expressing my profound dismay at the Department of Justice case against Douglas Mackey over posting memes on Twitter in 2016. Shockingly, Mr. Mackey is being charged with a subset of the Enforcement Act of 1870, also known as, get this, the Ku Klux Klan Act. You couldn't make this up if you tried. So that's what's happening, and that's the current state of affairs with our media. And I think it's unfair. It's, un it's unfair, it's inappropriate, because people, I don't know how to say this, other than... It's the First Amendment for a reason, right? You've got a right to make a joke. You've got a right to criticize the government. You've got all sorts of rights when it comes to speech. This is important. And when this right is taken away from us, uh, or at least taken away from this guy, and again, if they do it to him, they'll do it to you, right? They'll do it to me. They'll do it to any of us. We can't stand for an injustice like this because then that injustice will repeat, and it'll repeat, and it'll repeat, and look no further than what happens in New York City. 
people get attacked. Nobody does anything. They get attacked some more. They go after the shop owners in the bodegas. They get attacked some more. I remember remember that case. I don't know if you remember. That guy, Jose Alba, Dominican guy uh, in the city. He got uh, attacked. They, the guy pulled out a gun or whatever, tried to rob him. Whatever it was, he pulls out a, uh, a knife from behind the counter, stabbed the guy. The guy ends up dying. And then his wife tried to stab him, and he had, I think he had to cut her too. They try to put that guy in jail for murder when he was the victim. Well, this is what's happening in the media. And, and this is not something that I think we could uh, roll over and play dead, just like the Hunter Biden stuff. You know, today there's new information that another member of the Biden family has cashed in on the China cash that's been flowing into the Biden family's coffers. Hallie Biden now. This is uh, Bo Biden's widow who then began dating the brother. And I know, I know that's it's shocking, you know, because it, it's an old school principle, right? Uh, that I don't think anybody does anymore, but it's crazy. But anyway, back to the media, the way they covered up Hunter Biden, the way they they've covered up uh, just about everything or the way that they they cover for Biden with this drone attack. Right. Our, our drone was attacked. It wasn't collided. It wasn't like, you know, we accidentally had a, a fender bender. You've seen the video. This jet goes out of its way to come and like, you know, shoulder check our drone. What do we do? Absolutely nothing. And then every, every, uh, I don't know what to call them, but the, uh, I'll call them the pro-Putin progressives, right? And you can call me a warmongering neocon if you'd like. Everybody's there saying, don't help Biden. Don't, don't get sucked into World War III. Joe Biden's not going to launch any World War III. Don't you remember when they were like, hey, we got bin Laden. He was like, I don't know. Don't go after him. Don't do not do it. No. Joe Biden doesn't want to fight with anybody. He just wants to spend money and get money through the back door. That's all he wants to do. But anyway, before we run out of time, I want you to hear this clip of audio from Dana White from the UFC talking about the media with my buddy, Mike Gunzelman, former colleague of mine on talk radio in New York City. And uh, he's explaining how he's putting together a documentary calling out the media. Listen to this. I'm doing a much bigger documentary about the media. That, that that I'm putting together that I can't wait to put out where I'm calling people out by name, by, you know, the publication that they work for, the whole deal. Bring in the receipts, baby. Think, yeah. oh, oh, I can't wait. Trust me. This is, this is a passion project for me. Um, but, but one of the things I'll give you an example, my home newspaper, my local paper, the Las Vegas review journal, one of the mm-hmm. biggest pieces of newspapers in the country. Think about this. We make it through COVID. We do everything. Nobody gets hurt. Yada, yada, yada. We're doing, I said, I wouldn't do an event in any of the venues unless I could do a full event. So I was putting on the first event that was going to have a sold out packed stadium. My local newspaper writes a story. The headline is 12,000 people are willing to die to watch a UFC event live. What it, what it tells you is weak, whiny, you know, terrified, uneducated, (laughs) you know, I could just go on for days about what that means. And and that's the thing with most of these media guys. You have the weakest, wimpiest people on earth trying to talk about some of the toughest, baddest sports on earth or, or, or whatever it might be. 
Again, that's uh, UFC CEO founder Dana White on OutKick with Mike Guns. Mike Gunzelman, uh, good guy. You should check that out if you get a chance. But the point here is he's calling out the media, and we have to call out the media. And somebody else that's calling out the media, James O'Keefe. And he's been doing it for for over a dozen years. And recently, uh, from within, like just yesterday, was the Ides of March, and it was like A2 Brute, right? They turned on him. And he's back. He's better than ever. He's got a new organization called OMG O'Keefe Media Group, and he's going to tell us all about it uh, when he's joining us right after this. So don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, we're here with James O'Keefe. You know him as the founder of Project Veritas, recently uh, removed by Project Veritas, and now he's back with his brand-new organization, OMG O'Keefe Media Group. James O'Keefe, welcome to the program. Hey there, Richie Valdez. You know, we've known each other for eight years, and we are. um, I'm back in the dirty jersey, um, starting a new (laughs) company. Uh, and we're exposing corruption at a larger scale than when I knew you some eight years ago. That's fantastic. So let's let's talk about this. I guess let's start where where where, where I guess everybody left off with uh, this this bombshell that came in February, where you were you know removed, uh, in my opinion, without cause. And um, you know how did that come about? And and what made you decide to to go with this new venture? Well, um, I'm the founder of Project Veritas. I, I started that company about 14 years ago um, in my dad's garage in Westwood, New Jersey, built it into a $25 million 51 c 3 foundation. And I spent my basically my entire life building the credibility of this news organization. It's a very effective news organization. I uh, started doing undercover work when I was in college, actually, Rutgers when I was 18. Um, and over the years, uh, it, it grew, and we broke a story on Pfizer January 25th, and then mm-hmm. a week later I was ousted from Project Veritas as the chairman and CEO. Um, on February 10th, I was terminated from my position at Project Veritas, and yesterday, Rich, we launched a new organization called O'Keefe Media Group, OMG. And the mission of OMG is going to be to decentralize journalism and crowdsource journalism out to the people all over the world. Um, And I've received so many emails from people that want to do what I do, people in the government, people in education, and they want to be given these little cameras to go record. So I, I think in summary, a sleeping giant has been awoken in this country right now partially because of what's happening. Banks are failing. Pharmaceutical companies are lying to you. Three-letter agencies are behaving badly. And I think it's also what's happened to me. People trust me and they come to me and I want to equip them. I want to mobilize them. I want to empower them. And that's what you can do at this company that I started. You can, you can go on the, on the, on the website, O'Keefe media group.com. 
You can sponsor a camera. You can subscribe and purchase a camera that we can ship out to people. All right, make sure you get that right, folks. It's O'KeefeMediaGroup.com, O-K-E-E-F-E, MediaGroup.com. And uh, once you go on the homepage, there's a video from James. Check out the video. And you've got bronze, silver, gold, platinum. Do what you can. And I rarely encourage people to donate this freely, but I'm I'm doing it this time because, A, I I know what James is doing. I I know this work uh, intimately, and it's so important. I think very few people realize the uh, the blood, sweat, and tears that, that you put into the organization, or, or better said, what you put into any project that you're working on, right? Uh, whether it was, you know, video A or video B. And I think that's important. Now, let's talk a little bit about your, your I think the, the organization went from just exposing corruption and self-dealing to, to really, uh, or your personal mission, we should say, uh, to really going after... Um, the truth at every level, and it always has been, but you kind of streamlined it and and um, made it more laser focused in, in recent years. And you and the success was incredible, uh, both through the the fundraising you did and the outcomes of these projects. What types of projects are you going to look at now moving forward? Well, you know, my my project is to expose liars. Uh, fraudsters, cheaters, and stealers. That's my specialty. That's my, that's my raison d'etre. My purpose in life is to specialize in, in that. As to what the topic is, I would say it's all the things. It's all the topics. I'm not, see, I'm not one to, most people in media go on television and tell you what to think. That's, let's face it. Isn't that what 99% of people do? And aren't you sick and tired of that? Do you really need some schlub to tell you what to believe and who to vote for? Is that equipping you with any information? Is that helping our country? Is that is that informing the citizenry? Is that mm-hmm. Thomas Je- what Thomas Jefferson meant when he said we need more newspapers? No. What people need are the cold, hard facts. They need to know what's actually happening behind closed doors because people are being taken advantage of. And – I don't know what the topic is. Is it the banks? Is it, is it, is it, is it wall street? Is it, is it the FDA? Uh, is it uh, Pfizer? Is it some teachers union official covering up sexual abuse? Is it Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of teachers? Is it the New York Hope times so. spiking stories? I mean, it's all of the things, right? It's not what, what we're targeting. It's, it's, Allowing every person out there to themselves be a journalist because you can. And I want to teach people how to do that. I, this website right now is bare bones. We just launched yesterday. We have our subscription service up. We're purchasing cameras right now. But in a few weeks, in, in, in a month's time, I'm going to have classes on this website teaching you about ethics and about technology and about consent recording in certain states you can record in certain states you cannot teaching you about what is a story and most importantly, getting it on audio or video, because in this day and age, in the age of Instagram, seeing is believing. So that's my mission, Rich. And, and, I, and you have a large audience. You, you, you're, you're syndicated. I'm sure there are people out there listening right now who will do this for free because sure. um, it's very satisfying to, to get the story. And it's very satisfying to bring these fraudsters to justice. Yeah, and I just want to echo that a little bit because I think uh, I've met personally a bunch of people that were professionals that were either had three, four weeks vacation, didn't know what to do with, or 
uh, retired individuals that said, hey, I want to get involved in one way or another. And and they want to help the, the cause of exposing the truth so that people can, like you said, um, be the informed citizenry that uh, both Jefferson, Reagan and so many others have talked about. And, and I think that's the key. I think the other part of this is is making sure that you train these these guerrilla journalists to, to do what they're doing. And, and it's not easy work. Right. I think it's it's uh, kind of gutsy. And um, talk a little bit about that for those who aren't familiar, who don't realize, you know, how dangerous it can be at times um, in the next minute or so. Let us know, you know, how edgy this can be. Well, to, to do this sort of work is sort of to um, Daniel Ellsberg once wrote um, to step outside the great chain of, of being um, and to join another dimension. Uh, it, it is it is not easy. And most of the people that do it that are that are worth a damn are the general public, the the, the, the honest teacher, the honest cop, who has a, a crisis of conscience. And and you have to weigh your loyalty to the public interest against your loyalty to, to the organization that you work for. And most most of the time, possibly your own friends or the people that you thought were your friends, because when you tell the truth in this day and age, you oftentimes have to um, you have to you're adhering to a higher purpose. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a band of brothers. It, 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 you have to follow one's conscience and take action against the forces of conformity and compliance that puts you at odds with the larger society. And sometimes with the elements of the social contract itself. So you, it is really a unique thing, but I think our country is evolving to a point where more and more people want to do it. Um, and more and more people play, place a primary value on the truth and their conscience and making a difference and then even making a dollar. I've seen it. I know it. Um, and, I, and I've seen it more in the last month than I've ever seen it in my life. And again, folks, uh, we're on with James O'Keefe, uh, founder of O'Keefe Media Group, OMG. And uh, James was arrested, raided. Um, you, you name it, they've done it. <laughs> the, the attorney general of uh, Richard Head, right? What was he from New Hampshire? I mean, the the amount of things that they've done to you to try and stop you uh, are have been for many would be insurmountable. And I think you've um, you've overcome each and every time, and it's because of the mission. So I want to talk a little bit more about the mission and a little bit more about the story when we come back. Straight ahead, uh, we're coming back with James O'Keefe, eight three three four Valdez is the phone number eight three three four eight two five three three seven. Don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right here. I'm Rich Valdez. It's America at night. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. listen to you rich all the time america at night with rich valdez all right america welcome back it's rich valdez our guest james o'keefe uh james o'keefe 
is the founder of O'Keefe Media Group. And um, and before we let James go, I really wanted him to kind of just give this full circle story of how, you know, of everything he went through from being raided by the FBI, being arrested by the FBI, uh, being pardoned for for the uh, alleged crime and and everything else that he's had to overcome to to get to where he is and still not giving up with this new venture, O'Keefe Media Group. And I think it's important uh, because it, it it a shows you the importance of the work and B it shows you why this even exists. It's because of the media landscape today. James O'Keefe. I, I will tell you that I have been uh, doing this for 14 years and, and I don't know if you wanted to get back into some of the backstory behind starting out. Sure. I know you and I've worked together from the beginning. I mean, I broke the acorn story in 2009 going undercover as a pimp. Remember that one where Congress defunded <laughs> acorn, um, arrested Classic. in Louisiana in 2010, uh, FBI arrested me, falsely accused me of something I didn't do. I was eventually exonerated years later, but spent three and a half years on federal probation for a misdemeanor. Wrote the NPR story in 2011. Uh, did some voter fraud work. You mentioned Richard Head. The guy's name, the Attorney General of New Hampshire's name, was actually Richard Head, aka Dickhead. Yes. Um, he sent me criminal grand jury subpoenas. Uh, they changed the laws in some of these states to require a photo ID after we did some undercover investigative work showing that dead people could vote in New Hampshire and elsewhere. Was offered Eric Holder's ballot in D.C. by even saying his name at the polling location, embarrassing him in Congress. Exposing the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, that led to the resignation of Bob Creamer, associate of Barack Obama, for bragging about things in videos, including Scott Fogel, his associate, inciting violence at Trump rallies. And then fast forward to 2018, broke stories on Twitter showing shadow banning, uh, Mm -hmm. the Jeff Epstein story in 2019, um, ballot harvesting in 2020, suing the New York Times for defamation and winning uh, on motion to dismiss in 21, exposing Twitter in 22, and Pfizer in 2023. So I've been doing this a long time. Uh, and I built Project Veritas into a $25 million newsroom, and I was terminated from Project Veritas just a month ago. Um, and then I'm founding this new venture called O'Keefe Media Group, um, and I'm very excited about decentralizing journalism. That is to say, empowering everyone out there to do it on their own, which people say is impossible. I believe it's possible. I believe they need help. I believe they need coaching and support. It's a very ambitious vision, but if you're listening, you're tuning in now, if you go to the website O'Keefe, that's spelled O-K-E-E-F-E, my last name, O'KeefeMediaGroup.com, you can sponsor a camera for somebody. These cameras run about six, $700. They're hidden cameras. And we will be posting training on that website and portals to get involved. Outstanding. And uh, James, the... Well, first, I, I, let me go to this because there's a few people holding on that want to say a few things, and we won't be able to get to all the callers, but there is uh, Mark in Cleveland, Ohio, WNIR. Mark, go right ahead very quickly. You're on with James O'Keefe. Okay. I was uh, born in – well, I'm 63 years old. Okay, but anyways, um, what I, the thing is what I'm recognizing is, is definitely dysfunction in the families. Uh, not only in Ohio, but I'm going to guess. Take a. Are we talking about the media, yeah. Mark? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Go I, straight I to understand it. what he what he's saying. He basically, he he he. They're digging for for the truth. Okay, in this country, and we're not 
we, because people have lost faith in truth being told on the on the media uh, and from our, our government. All right, we're going to run out of time, Mark. I'm sorry about that. I understood something different from the call screen that you had a, a very brief comment. <clears throat> All right, well, James, what I was told he said was that he was with you 100%, so I apologize for that. But what I wanted you to get to before you go is is your take on decentralizing the media and and what that looks like. Well, it's going to involve teaching people how to do journalism themselves, that you, you, you are the media, that you can do it, that you have to have a sense of ethics. You have to understand how to use the equipment. You have to understand what the laws are in various states. You have to produce it yourself and tell the story yourself and, and as the call screener can sometimes attest to, get to the point very quickly yourself. <laughs> every, right. one of us, every one of us has to learn how to be a communicator and how to tell the story and how to show the truth. That's the only hope for this country. People are very hopeless, Rich. People are very cynical. People think nothing matters. People right. think that we're beyond the pale, that there's no saving us. We're, there's no turning back the pendulum. I, I'm, I'm a realist and I'm also an optimist. I think there is hope, but it's gonna require you guys out there do it yourself. And you may not like to hear that. You want someone else to go, come save you. Uh, nobody's going to save you. Um, I will help you. I'll equip you. I'll mobilize you. I'll teach you. I'll build a media company that'll change the world. I, I believe that sincerely. And it starts today, O'KeefeMediaGroup.com. I'm a man of my word. I've done I've done thousands of, of stories over the last 15 years. Um, I intend to do um, hundreds of thousands of stories, but it's going to require scaling it up. And, um, and equipping people, an army of citizens with hidden cameras and, and shining a light on dark places. Well, folks, you heard it right there from James O'Keefe, founder of O'Keefe Media Group, OMG. Uh, I recommend that you go there right now, give whatever gift you can to support the cause. O'Keefe Media Group, that's O-K-E-E-F-E, mediagroup.com. James O'Keefe, I want to thank you. Is there any uh, final plug, anything else you want people to do, let them know about before you go? You can subscribe. You know, this is a subscription-based news organization, and you can sponsor a camera. It, it ranges from $20 a month to $500 to, to buy those cameras for our citizens who are going to go out and get this information. Uh, go to the website, O'Keefe Media Group, and hit the subscribe button to support my work and the works of thousands of others. Keep getting the scalps. Keep exposing them all. James O'Keefe, Godspeed to you, sir. Godspeed. Thank you. All right, folks, your calls and more straight ahead. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-THE-NUMBER-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's go to Steve in Atlanta, Georgia, WGKA. Go right ahead, Steve. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, hey, Rich. Um, 
Um, I didn't hear enough uh, about what his new website is. It, you know, it was like it was fleeting, and I didn't get a chance to write it down. Sure, um, it's O'Keefe Media Group. Donated to him monthly, reoccurring, and I will. I'll follow him. I'm not following. I'm a plumber in Atlanta, and when you yeah. find a good plumbing manager, you know, you find a good plumbing manager who's a nice, kind man who doesn't jump to conclusions or you know all that stuff and treats men like men. You follow him wherever he goes. Yeah, if they're offering a sign on, you're going. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, I, I think you're 100 percent right. And listen, I, I, as he mentioned, I, I've been with him since, since back in the day, and uh, and we've butted heads and everything. But I, I would never, never not follow O'Keefe in 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 a journey like this. This is a guy that has vision and foresight that I, I've never seen anyone else that has this type of vision to uh, to do this type of work specifically. This, you know, uh, since the days of Nellie Bly. You know, she was a famous investigative journalist that went undercover in a mental institution, and then they wouldn't let her out. Even when she identified herself as a journalist, uh, they were like, no, 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 you're crazy. And the point was they didn't let anybody out of that place. Even if you if you weren't crazy or not, mental illness didn't matter. It was a, um, a financial thing, a power thing. And um, anyway, not to belabor the point, but I think you're right, Steve. Um, you you got to go with the people that, that call them like they see them. Please repeat the um, where he's found. No. Yeah, sure. It's O'KeefeMediaGroup.com, O'Keefe, A-O-K-E-F-E, O'KeefeMediaGroup.com. All right, we got it. Thank you. You got it, brother. Keep up the good work. We always need a good plumber, especially in Atlanta, Georgia. Shout out to WGKA. Let's uh, keep it going to Jim in Bowling Green, Kentucky, WKCT. Jim, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Good evening, Rich. How you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Although I was I was hitting the heavy bag around like nine o'clock, nine thirty p.m. Eastern time, and I think it was too dusty in my basement, and I've been like coughing every time we're on a commercial break. But other than that, I'm okay. What's going on, Jim? Better than coughing to keep your muscles tight, though. <laughs> That's true. Go for it, yeah, brother. I, I was just calling in about your guest, Mister O'Keefe. It's the thing that I looked at the last, it seemed like about the last six years, we've lost transparency, transparency in the media. And it's either, I've even lost faith in Fox. I used to be a big Fox fan and they seem like they've sold out. Newsmax got, is getting pushed off the cable companies. And it's going to, I guess it's going to come down to a grassroots thing of somebody like that individual willing to, try to establish a media that I I don't want to spin. I don't want somebody to explain to me what's wrong or what's right. I want somebody Mm -hmm. to tell me what the facts of the story is. Let me, I've got a brain. Let me figure it out. You know what? And and that's really, you know, something that James always talked about. Uh, He always said, this is cinema verite. You know, the video speaks for itself. Just show people the video and let them figure out what they want to do with the video. And that's the truth. Uh, I mean, you could offer your conjecture on the video. You could say, hey, you know, here are the facts. This is so-and-so. So-and-so said this to me in this place. Here's the video. But uh, the video does speak for itself. And, you know, they've always, for years, they said, oh, but these are deceptively edited. But what was funny was for the first, I don't know, eight, nine years of Project Veritas, they released the raw video, which was sometimes 10 hours, 14 hours, 11 hours of every piece of video they caught for that particular story, uh, along with the the edited version that had, you know, 
the meat and potatoes of the story. And it, it always fascinated me how the media had access to the to the full video, but they didn't want to, I guess, go through 14 hours of video. So they would just blanketly say, oh, yeah, you know what, that's, that's um, deceptively edited. And you're right. Um, there's a lot of media that are in the tank, and it starts from, from honestly, from college. People that are studying journalism. Um, you know, Mark Levin wrote an excellent book on this called "Unfreedom of the Press." And in that book, "Unfreedom of the Press," uh, he outlines how there was a change from journalism being a pursuit of the truth to journalism becoming uh, something of correcting social problems, and and. Um, in effect, becoming social justice warriors or social activists. And this activist journalist, which is what exists today, gets into the media to promote their agenda. And not the way I do, because I've never hid my, my agenda, right? I, I think everybody knows I, I'm, a, I'm conservative. Um, I'm here to give my opinions and offer commentary, and I don't pretend to be a news guy ever. Uh, but there are people that pretend to be news people, and they take you on this little journey of theirs where the, while they're pretending to, you know, give you just the facts, and they're not giving you the facts. They're giving you all sorts of opinion and commentary and, and editorializing the story. And and unfortunately, that's where we are, and it's, it's, it's almost impossible to find a real journalist that just, you know, gets you a video and says, hey, we report, you decide. Jim? Well, and that's what I, I'm – I'm wondering what happened down the way. You can anybody that's got any common sense can tell what a raw footage looks like. That it's not been edited. You know that. And mm -hmm. if that goes, you know, when the truth smacks you in the face, whether whether it lines up with your your reasoning or what you believe in or what you don't believe in, um, it's like you know, I'm a white guy, sixty four year old white guy. Well, I'm automatically racist on anything that I say or do, and it's not that way. That's not that's not what's going on in this country. I believe there's people of all different ethnic backgrounds, all different races, that if you actually just tell them the truth, we could probably come together as a nation and stop all this foolishness that's going on right now. Well, Jim, I believe you, and I'll, I'll take it a step further. I think we already have gotten to that point where we work together. I think that the issue is that we constantly have people trying to stoke something in the media, you know, and, and just to, to simplify there, there are tragic events from time to time, but I think anybody with their head screwed on right realizes that that's not every day that we have these tragic events, right? Charlottesville is not a normal uh, recurrence, right? It's an occurrence. It happened once and it's few and far between, and thank God it did. But Joe Biden ran for president with that clip uh, of people shouting, the Jews will not replace us, and holding those torches. And that was his initial campaign commercial, making it seem as if this is uh, the norm in America. Now you've got the FBI and the media repeating this thing that, you know, white supremacists are the biggest threat to America. And he continually, even talking about drug prices, he says, but the MAGA Republicans, the MAGA Republicans, right? So it's, it's, I think it's Biden, the politicians, those in the media that are trying to push this agenda to make it look like, you know, there's a race war and there's all sorts of problems in this country that really don't exist at the level that they're purporting that they do. But that's the story that they tell. And then some people buy into it and 
hook, line, and sinker. And I think it's unfortunate. But I can tell you, look, I've been uh, an American of Puerto Rican descent my whole life. Uh, rarely have any problems because of that. Most people treat me extraordinarily well. Um, and, and I've just never really experienced this racism. Here I am on this big radio show and, uh, and I'm treated with the utmost respect. So I, I can tell you in my life, I haven't experienced that. So I think you're right. It's not that we can get together and get past these things. I think we we've gotten past these things and it's just the media and those that want to be race hustlers or what have you, um, rabble rousers. They're the ones pushing it in the media, Jim. Well, I'm with you. And I, what what's sad to me is you can cherry pick anything that you want to for any issue, and I and make it look like something that it's not. But I'm with yeah. you on the grounds bill. I, I believe we're going to get to a point, and I think there's people in the middle mm-hmm. that have had enough of this. They're they're done. I think you're right, Jim. I think you're 100 percent right, and and I think that's why this next uh, presidential election is probably going to speak to that. If um, if if we can overcome some of the challenges that we have. But I appreciate your call from Bowling Green, Kentucky, WKCT. Uh, big shout out to you, Jim, and everybody out there listening. There is more to come straight ahead. I am Rich Valdez. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. It's not. Here's what shouted down when we're in the other. Shout at us to get out. I hear you guys. I hear you guys. I hear you guys. That giggling that you hear there—that's KJP Karine Jean-Pierre at the White House press briefing today, saying, "Oh, that's not true. That Biden never answers question, right?" And I'll just give you. I have the transcript. You couldn't hear it so well because it's a little noisy. But the reporter says he hasn't answered any questions. Jean-Pierre says that's not true. He answered questions. The reporter says. We get yelled at, uh, KJP. Uh, then she, the reporter again says, we were shouted down. They shouted at us to get out. And she, and she says, I hear you. I hear you guys. I hear you. <laughs> and she just laughs. Uh, I mean, it, it's amazing how, uh, what a lack of transparency. O'Keefe mentioned a lack of transparency in the media, and one of our callers did as well. Uh, but there's such a lack of transparency coming out of the White House that is, in my opinion, astounding. It just blows me away, in particular on this um, story of the Biden crime family. And again, you know, a lot of people call them the Biden crime family. And, and oftentimes it's tongue in cheek because, you know, they're politicians, not criminals. But it's my opinion that uh, many politicians are actually the the most dangerous criminals. But that's a different story for maybe one of my podcasts. This is America with Rich Valdez. Check that out and subscribe as well. But fascinating to see how... Um, you know, James Comer today, the um, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, he um, exclusively revealed to the New York Post that there were payments made to Hunter Biden's sister-in-law, who then became his lover, uh, based on a $3 million deal with a Chinese energy company. Look at that. Anyway, more to come straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. We're just getting started. It's Rich Valdez, and we'll be right back.
from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And uh, there's so many stories out there. We're talking about uh, the media and the craziness in the media, what's going on with the Biden crime family and their kickbacks. And I wanted to talk about something before I bring in our guest very quickly uh, about a first-year medical student who who was a group of first-year medical students who were told to call women people with cervixes or cervices, I guess. And uh, this professor slammed this whole thing. And he was saying, this is an anti-biological lesson. This happened at Indiana University School of Medicine. And uh, he condemned this lesson because he said it was inculcating gender ideology amongst first-year medical students as anti-scientific and saying that it was anti-biological, warning that it would have a very detrimental effect to the health and healthcare profession, stating that he had not heard of any internal discussions about the lesson before professors implemented it saying, I didn't hear about this until it came out in the news. The professor who spoke with the Daily Signal on condition of anonymity said in a phone interview that the transgender lesson did not surprise him. However, because the entire biomedical profession has been conquered by this aggressive ideology that inculcates a certain worldview. And um, that worldview is wokeism. And um, my worldview is you know, a Christian worldview or maybe a biblical worldview uh, for, for most intent and purpose. And and I believe that this new worldview is based on what some are saying might be a new religion. And that's what I want to talk about. We're going to talk with Mark Tapson. He's the Shillman Fellow on Popular Culture at the Horowitz Freedom Center. And uh, we're going to talk about his piece, Wokeness, not Christianity, is the reigning mainstream religion. Mark Tapson, welcome to the program, sir. Rich, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Thank you. So let's uh, let's dig into this because I think uh, wokeism is a, a pernicious, I'm going to say, uh, with no offense to anyone, cancerous type of uh, illness on the body politic today, in my opinion. Well, I, I second that opinion. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when, when traditional faith like Christianity is in decline, which Christianity unfortunately is across America and also other countries in, uh, that are part of Western civilization, and Western civilization used to be called Christendom, by the way, <laughs> but you can right. see it happening all across uh, the United States and Europe and Canada and, and Australia – this rise in a secular, the secular religion of wokeism. And when traditional faith declines, what fills that void is political religions and also a religion of the self. And you can see that that's what's happening with wokeism and gender ideology uh, and all of the, the, these um, uh, agendas and ideologies that are starting to dominate the culture. And so when I say that... Um, wokeism or wokeness is the reigning mainstream religion. I don't necessarily mean that in terms of another, the number of adherents, but in terms of political and cultural power, wokeness is definitely 
the reigning mainstream religion, and Christianity is being marginalized by contrast to that. Yeah, without question. And I, I think this has a lot to do with uh, the, um, I'll go with the term, cultural Marxism that we see at play yeah. w- within the media, within the government, with within so many um, uh, establishments where it's easy mm-hmm. to promote woke, wokeism and just uh, peddle it. And, and it's the only game in town in many places, right? I mean, I, oh, yeah. I had a conversation today, uh, just to go off topic a little bit, but it's right in line with this. Uh, I used to be on a school board for uh, eight or nine years, and the I spoke with the um, one of the head administrator at the school today, and I asked him, how, how is this, you know, for you? Uh, is it, because it was a very, um, I don't want to say conservative, but the culture of the school was very conservative, small c, not political, but just uh, very... Mm-hmm. Um, student-centered, parent-centered. It really didn't, they, they were very apolitical, very neutral. And I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, it's almost impossible to avoid because there isn't a yeah. place where you can get a teacher from that hasn't been indoctrinated this way. And, uh, and I thought, and my first thinking was, well, yeah, and you can't like discriminate because of where they went to school or what they believe. You know, you just got to kind of put a, a rule book mm-hmm. in front of them and say, hey, look, we don't do this here, X, Y, and Z. But it was just fascinating to me that, that this is, um, you know, even the pool of applicants. And again, that's why, because yeah. they, they knew that if you go after, you know, a, a labor union, if you go after the ac- academia as a whole, um, eventually 50 years, a hundred years, it's taken them. You get to a point where mm-hmm. you rule the roost. And, and I think that's where we are. And it's a fascinating place because they've been so successful, um, with implementing this stuff. And when, and I think you're a hundred percent right. When you say that this is the new religion, how do we, how do we dissect it, and how do we reverse it? Well, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, uh, you, you know, as, as you mentioned, it took them maybe 50 years or more to, uh, to, to come to dominate all of the different arenas of the culture, you know, education and uh, the news media and the entertainment arena. Um, and now they've got a, quite a grip on it, and right. we're playing catch-up. Um, and so, I, I mean, I would say at this point that the left absolutely dominates the culture. I mean, there's, we're not even in a position now to be waging a culture war. We're really only in a position to be waging a culture insurgency. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're not, we're not on an even playing field. We, we have to be guerrillas about it now, um, because the, the power imbalance is, is so, uh, great. Um, so what do we do about it? That's a good question. I think knowledge and awareness of it has to come first. I think a lot of conservatives were caught off guard by the, the this sudden uh, metastasizing. I mean, you used the word cancer earlier, and that, I think that describes it exactly. It's just metastasized throughout the culture to the extent that now it's it's everywhere. It's in every human resources department. It's in almost every classroom in public schools and even a lot of private schools. Uh, it's now making its way through medical and legal schools, which is just going to have disastrous consequences. So it's everywhere. And I think conservatives, first of all, have to really just come to terms with with what it is, what um, the leftists are trying to do with it, how they make it work for them. And um, and we have to start fighting back and pushing back hard. And partly we do that in the cultural arena. Actually, I would say mostly in the cultural arena. Um, and also uh, in the political arena, we have to start looking for politicians who don't just 
spout the usual conservative talking points about, you know, free markets and, uh, you know, Second Amendment rights. We've got to have politicians who understand how to fight a culture war. And I think Ron DeSantis, for example, is, is a great example of someone who understands how to fight on, in, you know, on their uh, on their terms and in their turf. So we need more politicians like that. Uh, we need to get involved on local levels in terms of um, maybe trying to get on school boards because that's that's a really critical area that conservatives need to retake. Um, so everywhere we can start to push back politically, we need to do it. And that, I don't think that's something that comes easily to conservatives. We're not really political activists, most of us. You know, mm-hmm. uh, political activism is like a religion for the left. They they love that and they're experts at it. But conservatives are. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's kind of unfamiliar territory to most. You're a hundred percent right. The hang of it. And, yeah, and I think we know, need to get start getting the hang of it. I think, and I think we we saw a a trend in that in the last dozen years or so with the Tea Party, where people became activists. And and I think mm-hmm. the resurgence of the Tea Party, I'm going to say, is the MAGA movement. Where you know, I'd never seen political yes. rallies like I saw until Trump said, "Hey, let's get together and talk about the America." And and yes. all of a sudden, boom, people started showing up en masse. So I think uh, there's a renewed um, call for activism um, um, within the conservative movement, but. You're 100 percent right. We we many of us are still Reagan Republicans. Get off my back, out of my pocket, leave me alone, leave me yeah. alone, leave me alone. Right? Let me do my thing with my family and leave mm-hmm. me alone. <laughs> I don't want to talk exactly. to you. Leave me alone. And and until we lose that, and you know, losing that requires picking up this new mantle and saying, no, we're not going to leave anybody alone. We're gonna we're gonna fight this fight where the fight is fought, and it's in in the mm-hmm. ring and wherever that ring is, whether it's popular culture, entertainment, the media, etc. I think you're right. And this is something I harp about all the time, but I realize good. people don't want to get into the belly of the beast, right? You know, people just, they think, nah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I don't want to do it. What's your advice to somebody yeah. who says, uh, I, I don't want to do that. And don't say it just yet. Cause I want to, I want to hold that over for the next <laughs> segment and remind everybody who you are. Uh, we're on with Mark Tapson. Uh, he's with, uh, you can check out his piece on front page magazine and, uh, he's with the Horowitz Freedom Center. We're coming right back. Don't go anywhere. This is America night with rich valdez this is america this is night this is rich valdez Mark Tapson is the Shillman Fellow on Popular Culture at the Horowitz Freedom Center, and uh, he's written the article, Wokeness, Not Christianity, is the Reigning Mainstream Religion. Mark Tapson, we left off with a grand question. Go right ahead, sir. Yes, well, in terms of what conservatives can do politically, I think, first of all, we need to overcome voter apathy. I mean, when you see the numbers of Republicans out there who are not voting, even in major elections, it's quite shocking. So I think the first thing we have to do is just get past that. And especially these days, I think a lot of conservatives think, well, why bother voting? Because the Democrats are just going to cheat and steal the election anyway. But we have to overcome that. We can't let that stop us. So first thing is just make sure you vote. Beyond that, uh, just be as politically active as you can. Not everybody's in a position to run for school board. Uh, but if you are, by all means, do. Uh, not everybody is in a position to homeschool their children, but if you can, do that. 
everywhere you can make a difference in your local community, do that. And uh, overall, I think the main thing for everyone to do in the face of this uh, rising wokeness is stand and tell the truth. Don't let them force you to uh, accede to their lies. Don't let them force you into accepting, for example, the biological incoherence of gender ideology, the lies of critical race theory. Stand up and reject those lies and, you know, be ready to roll with the punches because they'll, they'll come for you. But when they see we stand up in numbers and that we're not going to back down, um, you know, like all bullies, they're cowards at heart. Um, so, you know, in the long run, we will we will succeed. But we've got to we've got to put ourselves out there and live not by lies, as uh, author Rod Dreher might say. You know, Mark Tapson, I think you're 100 percent right. And um, and it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to realize that, you know, some of us grew up in this era where life was easier. Life was simpler. Yes. Um, men were, you know, like Archie Bunker, girls were girls and men were men. <laughs> and and it, it, it was a different world. And, and so many people feel like beside themselves today where, you know, it's like we've been told, don't fight, don't fight. It's not worth it. Don't fight. Violence isn't the answer. So we've become a very docile group of people. And now we're, we're, we're getting robbed, right? We're getting robbed of our culture, getting robbed yeah. of our faith, getting everything is, is, and we're just like, but Hey, I'm docile. I, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I, I, I don't, I, I want to be left alone, get off, off my back, out of my pocket. And, and yeah. I think, you know, wrong century, bro, right? <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> yeah. the time for, for the uprising, right? This is, and I'm not saying a call for violence, but I'm saying we I must understand. be more bold. We must do more because the time to rest on our laurels and enjoy that easy life is gone. That's right. right. And the other side is, the, yes, the other side is not going to rest. They're not going to live and let live or let us get back to our daily lives. They will not rest, absolutely will not rest until uh, they've converted everything to their their secular morality and their gender ideology and, and their uh, racial uh, nonsense. They're, they're going to keep pushing and pushing, so there's no way we'll be able to escape it. We've got to face it sooner or later, and the sooner the better. Now, I want to draw the audience's attention back to the piece that you wrote. Um, and you mentioned a, a, a woman named Tamilia Valenzuela in a school meeting could you um, elaborate a little bit about that so that people understand that, that part of your piece? Oh, yeah. Um, well, the piece basically um, overall, I picked two or three examples, just recent examples, random news items uh, that showed how Christianity is being kind of marginalized and pushed back by this woke ideology. And one of them involves this school board in Arizona um, that canceled its contract with the local Arizona Christian University is the name of the school. Um which was providing the school district with student teachers um, who would get that way they would get some some experience teaching and maybe even uh, have you know possibilities for employment down the line. Well, the school board didn't like the fact that Arizona Christian University um, states on its website that that they abide by uh, biblically informed values. Um, including the centrality of family, traditional sexual morality, and lifelong marriage between one man and one woman, all of these things that, you know, 30 or 40 years ago would have been the mainstream, unquestioned uh, positions. Um, right. But this school board decided that these biblically informed values were threatening 
to them and to their community, uh, to the, the LGBT community, um, which a number of the school board members belong to. And so they canceled this contract. Um, and I think it's just, you know, it's another example of, of how Christian morality and Christian values are seen as a threat to wokeness and therefore have to be marginalized or squeezed out of the public square. And um, that's, you can see that happening all over. Uh, it's actually worse in places like Europe or Australia where they don't have our, our uh, First Amendment freedoms. Um, but the left is coming after those First Amendment freedoms, too. So they're not going to stop until they're, they've driven Christians and conservatives completely out of the public square. And then they'll begin to eradicate them in the private sphere as well. So uh, this is a battle that's not going to be over with. Uh, because the left is waging total war. And so we've, we've got to recognize that and react accordingly. 100% right. And again, folks, uh, Mark Tapson, he's the Shillman Fellow on Popular Culture at the Horowitz Freedom Center. And I, I can't stress enough how, um, I mean, it's a good article. It's a really good article, but Thank it's you. really what, you, what you. you're talking about in the article that is of paramount importance, in my opinion. I think, you know, th- this idea that, you know, Christianity is being displaced by wokeness um, yeah. and uh, or you actually suggest that it's, it's already been displaced by wokeness and um, the reigning mainstream religion. And and I think that's a that's a fair point to make because people need to realize. And again, this is not a a hard sell for Christianity, although maybe it is from me. But overall, mm-hmm. it's it's really a, a, a hard sell against wokeism, right? I mean, there, yeah. that doesn't bring about anything good. I don't care if you want to be an atheist or whatever you want to be. Uh, the the yeah. point here is to not, you know, kind of like the Muslims that recently got uh, up in arms uh, in Michigan when they said, you know what, we're mm-hmm. done with this this transgenderism in our classrooms. We're done with all of this stuff. It's it's not in line with what we believe. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've been Democrat supporters forever and it's got to stop. I think that that's the lesson that we have to learn here and, and we've got to follow suit. Mark Tapson, I think uh, let everybody know how they could find you um, if they want to follow the work you're doing. Uh, the best place at this point is a Substack account that I have. Substack is kind of a platform for writers who can just reach their audiences directly. And uh, you can just go to marktapson.substack.com. Easy enough. MarkTapson.substack.com. Mark Tapson, thank you, sir. Godspeed to you. Hope to have you back soon. I'd love that, Rich. Thanks. You bet. All right. More to come straight ahead. We're going to continue our discussion on rediscovering the American covenant with uh, Mark Burrell coming up straight ahead with me, Rich Valdez, on America at Night. Welcome back, and uh, we're going to continue our conversation. Uh, the topic here is a book called Rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restore America. And you can learn more about it on the website, defendamericanliberty.com. Our guest is Mark Burrell. He's the author of Rediscovering um, the American Covenant, 
the Roadmap to Restore America. Mark Burrell, welcome to the program, sir. Rich, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So uh, let, let's dig in here uh, because I think it's, um, it's, it's important to, to talk about this because of many things. I mean, we've got a presidential election this year. We've got, um, in my opinion, our, our Americanism is, is fading away. And I love that you have this roadmap to restore America, uh, which I, I think is important. And lamentably, there are people in society today, when you say things like restore America or revival of any type, they, they immediately think, oh, so you're a racist, right? You want to go back to slavery. You want Jim Crow. And, you know, they jump the gun and they go down these, these rabbit holes that are so dark. But I think it, there was a time in our country where we were better than we are today, where people were able to, to own a home and go on a few vacations a year and send their kids to college and pay for it. And just financially, it was better. I think the community was better. The camaraderie was better. Patriotism was at an all-time high. And, and those are just some of the things that stick out to me, but I want to dig into to your book. So uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what inspired this, um, this book. Well, it started with a question about 30 years ago. I grew up in the, the Philadelphia area in the 60s and 70s, and it was a very patriotic time. And when I got into uh, my 30s, which would have been the 1980s, I started hearing this negative narrative about the founding. And at that same time, I was exploring my faith and trying to better understand, you know, what I believed. And I was fortunate to find a mentor who took me through theology, and that really grounded me. And then I started really asking questions about the validity of the founding. Uh, So, Rick, the question that I asked was, if the revolution was all about taxation without representation, in other words, they didn't want to pay their taxes, but Jesus said you should pay your taxes— then how could the whole revolution have been biblically justifiable? And so I thought to myself, this is a question I ought to answer at some point. And so in the 90s, I started picking up books, you know, when I saw one that talked about the founding. And when I got to the early 2000s, it dawned on me that, you know, I should just read through the Bible and look for all the verses that talk about nations and governing and justice and rights. And, and so I did that. And I was flabbergasted at all the information that I found. There's actually thousands of verses that deal with this topic. And so I started to arrange them. And, you know, I was trying to be unbiased. Uh, by the way, my engineering, I'm an engineer. That's my background. And so I was taking a very, you know, analytical approach here. And when I started arranging everything and laying it out, I started to recognize that the American founding really followed the principles that that I was uncovering in the Bible. And as I asked myself, you know, what really is the problem in America today? Uh, In your previous segment, you were talking about the cultural decline. And so I, you know, I keep asking myself, what's the root cause problem? And a lot of people would say, well, we're not following the constitution or we've just got bad policy. And those things are problems. But what I realized is that they're not the root cause problem. The root cause problem is that we have a significant number of our fellow citizens who have fundamentally rejected our national founding covenant. And that document is the Declaration of Independence. And so that's what the book is fundamentally about. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. Why, um, I guess, what led you to believe that there's this... um 
rejection of the declaration? So if you read through the document, uh, which is essentially our national founding contract, it, it almost reads like a contract. If you start in the first paragraph, for instance, that's where they talk about the whole, by the way, the answer to my question was, the reason that the, the revolution was justifiable is because England had passed a, a number of laws that had violated the law of nature and of nature's God, which is in the first paragraph. That's a direct reference to the moral law summarized by the Ten Commandments, and that's why the Ten Commandments up until you know 50 years or so ago were posted in every schoolroom and every courtroom and often in you know front of courthouses. And it was to remind everyone that that is actually our legal standard. That literally is the rule of law. Mm-hmm. And then if you go to the next paragraph, you know, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we're all created uh, equal with certain rights and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you start to unpack that, and you realize that, you know, the, the secular progressive worldview just fundamentally rejects all of that. And so how do you... How do you govern when you have fellow citizens who fundamentally reject what the whole nation stands for? These are our founding principles, and they fundamentally reject them. And so I call that out as the basic problem. And what do you uh, surmise is the solution to a problem where people reject the, the founding and, and reject the, the fact that we are built on natural law? So what I believe we need to do as a nation is to have that conversation. If you think about what we hear right now in the political arena, we're, we're arguing about policy. We're saying that this policy is worse than that policy. We're arguing that the secular progressives are not following the Constitution, which they're not. And when we do that, what I assert is that we're really not dealing with the fundamental issue, which is what do we believe? as Americans. Who are we as Americans, really? And when I look at what the founders did and what made them successful, if you read through the rest of the Declaration, you see that they appealed to to God for help. That's in the last paragraph. You see that they committed wholly, you know, they with a firm alliance, uh, pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And then they signed the document. And so, Because of all that, and because they declared it, uh, I maintain that that's why God showed up and uh, helped them be successful. So this is what I believe we need to do uh, if we want to turn America around. All right, folks, we are on with Mark Burrell. He's the author of the book, Rediscovering the American Covenant Roadmap to Restore America. Keep it locked right there. We're coming right back to continue the discussion. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, and uh, we're continuing our discussion. Uh, Mark, I wa- we left off with I, uh, the fact that, or at least your, your assertion, that America's facing an identity crisis. And 
and and rejecting the founders and what they believed and wrote about, uh, rejecting pretty much the philosophy of, of many philosophers and thinkers of, of the Enlightenment. And what do you say to someone that says, that's because those are a bunch of cisgender white men and they're the bad guy and we don't have to live by those rules because these documents were written hundreds of years ago and and it's a living, breathing document. This is what it is. What do you say to someone like that? In reality, if someone's asking that kind of question, you're going to have difficulty swaying them. But what I would do, and I, I do have lots of conversations with folks that that have opinions like that, but usually if you're willing to talk about the difference between the worldviews, and I, I do this a lot actually where I work, I describe here's the founding worldview and here's what we believe and why we believe it, and here's the, the secular progressive worldview, and of course – one of the key differences is that they don't really have a moral standard that guides how they make decisions. And of course, that leads to a problem. And, I, you know, I talk about, so what does that mean about uh, marriage and the definition of marriage? You know, if a, if a man can marry a man, can a man marry a boy if they love each other? Uh, why can't a man marry, you know, six women? Where does it end? Where, what is your list is really what it comes down to. And, and so I try and poke at it that way and try and get them to articulate what is their list, what is their moral standard. And uh, you often find out that they have trouble answering that question. So it's, it's about trying to compare and contrast and uh, ask some questions that are difficult for them to answer. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. And I think ultimately, <clears throat> from what I'm gathering, uh, is that people are are suffering from being disconnected from whatever is informing their worldview. And <clears throat> in this situation, it's, I think there's a fundamental disconnect with um, civic education, the historical context of the founding of our nation, as well as the, the faith component that goes along with, um, with, with the founding of our country. And and I think that disconnect is one that I, I guess as an optimist, I feel we can reconnect uh, and we could right the ship. Uh, but sometimes I feel like maybe we can't. Maybe that ship has sailed. And, and you know, I'm just part of uh, yesteryear thinking that we can get to this place um, where, you know, faith once again is, is central to the national conversation and to people's daily lives uh, and not, you know, a thing of the past. Yeah, so two parts uh, to the answer. One is folks are starting to ask questions. And it's getting so crazy out there. I'm finding that folks are really interested. They're often it's off to the side. They're not wanting to, you know, express opinions in public, but I'm finding that if you can engage with people one on one, they're looking for a reasonable explanation for what in the world happened over the last fifty years. And that's one of the chapters in my book. I explain some of the you know, key Supreme Court decisions that led to taking school prayer out and the Bible out of the school. And so now, as a result, we have multiple generations that have no moral standard. And this is, of course, uh, the problem. If you don't have a standard, then, then you can you know, be swayed. The, the other part of the answer, and I cover this as actually the last chapter in the book, uh, I really uh, believe that we're at a point where 
America is in serious trouble unless we get God to re-engage, which is exactly what the founders did in the way that they drafted and approved the Declaration of Independence. It's really an incredible document. I encourage your listeners to pull it out and read it, and, and you'll see just how much they reference God, and in the end, how they're appealing to God for his help. And so one of the things that I discovered when I was reading through the Bible, I asked the question, What's the if the process to form a nation is to do through do so through a um, a mutual covenant? Well, what happens if the if the nation's wayward? What's the process to bring them back to God? And so if you if you read through the Old Testament, most of the kings weren't so good, but there were a few good civil leaders, kings like Josiah and uh, Nehemiah. And if you look at what they did when they took charge, they brought the people together and they recommitted to the covenant. And God bless their reign. And so this is why I say that uh, really what we've got to do as a nation, and it's got to start, obviously, with the patriots and, and ideally the Christian community. We've got to have that conversation. And I think we've got to recommit to God formally as a nation in order to get him to engage. So that's the last chapter in the book and uh, what I think we need to do to really turn America around. All right. And Mark Burrell, let everybody know where they can get a copy of the book and how they could follow the work that you're doing. So my website is defendamericanliberty.com. You can find me there. You can order the book from there. You can also order it wherever books are sold. So it's on Amazon. You can order it from there as well. So I'd love to hear from you. There's uh, contact information if you're interested in having, having me come speak at your church. That's the kind of thing I'm doing now. I'm truly trying to wake up the church. Uh, because that's uh, that's fertile ground, and the book's really meant to help really equip pastors to be able to do that with their church. So buy a copy for your pastor is what I recommend you do, and uh, buy a copy for yourself. Yeah, outstanding. I always tell people to get a copy of the book and get one to give away, and that's a, it's a good suggestion. Rediscovering the American Covenant, the Roadmap to Restore America, Mark Burrell, Thank you, sir. Godspeed to you. Keep up the good work. You are a patriot and a scholar. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right, folks, there is more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more on the hottest stories of the day. And today is a lot of a lot of interesting stories. So don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. So check this out. Headline I'm looking at here, Epic Times, theepictimes.com. American children are dying at the highest rate in 50 years. Uh, this is by Naveen Athrapuli, uh, Epic Times. Mortality rates among American children and adolescents rose by almost 20% in just two years with non-COVID injuries being a top reason for the increased deaths between 10, uh, excuse me, between 2019 and 2020. All-cause mortality rates 
for Americans in the age group of 1 to 19 years old jumped by 10.7%, according to data collected and published by the uh, JAMA Network for the American Medical Association. This was followed by an 8.3% spike between 2020 and 2021. The total mortality rate in the two years between 2019 and 2021 was 19%. That's the biggest increase in the last 50 years. These increases, the largest in decades, followed a period of great progress in reducing pediatric mortality rates, and and that's what makes it so interesting. Now, this reversal in the pediatric mortality trajectory was caused by non-COVID but by injuries, according to the editorial. In 2020, the COVID-19 mortality rate at ages 1 through 19 years old, was 0.24 deaths per 100,000. But the absolute increase in injury deaths alone was nearly 12 times higher, 2.8 deaths per 100,000. So between 2019 and 2020, injury mortality rose by 22.6% amongst those in the ages of 10 to 19 with homicides rising by 39.1% and drug overdose uh, deaths, excuse me, jumping by 11, 113.5%. And that's among uh, that age group there that I just mentioned of uh, 10 to 19 years old. Uh, now, amongst kids one to nine years old, injuries accounted for 63.7% of the increase overall in 2021. And it goes on. I know I'm giving you, um, you know, um, alphabet soup here with the numbers, but fascinating to see that despite all of the things we're doing and in spite of COVID, kids are still dying. In spite of doing better with infant mortality or pediatric mortality, we still have people under 19 or between one and 19 years old um, dying from, from COVID excuse me, dying from fentanyl, or what I'm going to presume is fentanyl, uh, from homicides and drug overdose deaths. That is nuts to me. Absolutely nuts that that's actually happening in the United States right now. Um, Let us uh, check in with your calls. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Frank Evergreen, Montana, K-O-F-I. Go right ahead. Thanks, Rich. Good topic. Uh I'd, I'd, yes, I'd like to say something about the uh, mortality rates of children that are – there's an increase in tobacco use and vaping uh, products mm. as well, and it's, uh, it affects their their lungs, of course. It's a cancer causer, and uh, it also ruins a person's bladder and pancreas, and uh, um, it's a – a real terrible thing. I think you're spot on there. That's one of many reasons and uh, not not the least of them. Frank in Evergreen, Montana, KOFI, thanks for the call and for the insight. Folks, your calls and more straight ahead. It's Open Phone America. We're going to talk about all of our topics plus all of yours. 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. 833-4-VALDEZ. Open Phone America starts right now. From the city that never sleeps. 
17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Hi there. Good evening and welcome. It's Open Phone America, 833-482-5337, 833-482-5337. And I want to get to a quick story before we get to your calls because I want to introduce this topic to you that I think is interesting. Um I, I know where I stand on it, but I'm curious to know where you guys stand on it, plus your opinions on everything else that uh, we discussed tonight. Let us uh, let me just find this quickly. All right. Bear with me. Live radio. Sorry, I should have had this queued up already, but sometimes my brain and mouth move faster than the computer does. But it has to do with reducing the amount of hours in the work week to 32 hours. And there's a congressman that's currently proposing that as a new law to increase happiness for all of humankind. Listen to this very quickly. The four-day work week is a a buzzword, and it's as busy as ever. One California congressman wants to make it a federal law. Representative Mark Tocano represents California's 39th district. Uh, he wants to make this a 32-hour work week act and get it passed through Congress so that we would go from a 40-hour work week to 32 hours by amending the Fair Labor Standards Act. His proposal would mandate overtime pay for any work done after 32 hours, which would encourage businesses to either pay workers for more uh, or longer hours or shorten their week and hire more people. So um, I'll tweet this out so that you can see it. And I think I might have tweeted it out earlier, but I'll tweet it out again just so that you, you have it. But I'm, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on a 32-hour work week uh, being a matter of law in the United States? Um, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. And, of course, we're taking calls on all of the topics that we've discussed uh, all evening long. Let's go to uh, Andrew, Sebring, Florida, WWTK. Andrew, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hey, Rich. In the restaurants, they do that to us anyhow, give us 32 hours. It's a way of keeping us way under the 40 hours. And to be honest, it really makes a lot of us mad um, to not be able to get close to 40 hours. We're just not getting enough per hour. The average line cook isn't any isn't, isn't getting the, the proper pay anywhere, really. But what I called about was the gentleman that was speaking about our founding fathers and such. I felt... In my opinion, I felt like he was, you know, flowering them up a little bit because, you know, they were all deists. You know, and deism, they don't, they have, they don't really feel like God has anything to do with our day-to-day runnings. And he was speaking on them as if to say they were super benevolent that way. And I just didn't buy it from the fella. I like what he was talking about, but I thought he just put a little bit too much perfume on that part of it. Yeah. Now, what makes you think that other than like Franklin and and Jefferson, that the rest of them weren't uh, very devout in their faith? Because, of course, there were a few that were deists, but uh, I wouldn't say the majority weren't. I mean, the 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 Enlightenment as a whole 
uh, produced a lot of people that were very God-fearing people, and they didn't identify as deists. Right. Well, you know, back in those times, I mean, if you weren't a, if you weren't down with God, you were really looked upon crazy to begin with. So whether you truly believe in God or not, you were definitely going to act that part. Um, and the reason why I would think so, even those times you have what they call abolitionists. Okay, slavery was still happening. So if you're really that benevolent and all that stuff, anybody who believes in God truly would know that slavery is bad. So for to me. And I, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I honor them and all that stuff, but I'm not going to put so much flour on those fellas. They had slaves. So, so you're saying that because some of them uh, were abolitionists and some of them were slaves, that somehow they didn't believe in God, the ones that were abolitionists? Oh, no, I'm not saying that they didn't believe in God. I'm just saying that, um, you know, it's like almost like a preacher preaching and not really believing what he's saying. It's something that you, you know, you have to put on something that they do. Um, but, you know, I just don't think that even in those times, what I was saying about the abolitionists, abolitionists were around even during those times. Remember, England let the slaves. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, we fought this civil war. I mean, the re- revolution, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm just trying to get your perspective, because I think it, the biggest part of history that we have in, in American history where we've gone furthest away from God is right now. So if if your assertion is correct that the founders were, you know, Christians in name only, and we would not have seen such adherence and such growth in Christianity in the United States for the 200 years following uh, the founding of the nation, right? It's it's really the, the biggest decline we've seen has been in the last 50 years, and the country's, I don't know, 246 years old. So... Uh, by by my math, it, it seems to me that from the time of George Washington and prior to George Washington to now, we probably were one of the most faithful countries, uh, or at least that was it was one of the most faithful times in American history uh, by church attendance, uh, church uh, adherence, that type of thing. You know, prayer in school, all of those things. I think um, you know somebody someday might look back on all of us and go, well, they weren't really that faithful. They were probably just deists or agnostic. But I, I mean, I think it, it would, I would beg the, it would beg the question for me to say, I, I don't know, because there was still growth in, in, in the religious movement. So I think if you make that case in the last 50 years, if you say, you know, uh, Billy Graham, Pat Robertson, all of these people, um, you know, were Christians in name only. And I'm not saying they are, but I'm just saying it would make more of, uh, of sense as an argument for me where you could say, yeah, you know what? There was a lot of revivals going on, a lot of tent meetings, a lot of everything. But in the last 50 years, we've gone further away from God than we ever have. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. But I think it's been a slow progression from day one. Yeah, I, I probably agree with you on that one, too. Well, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. Sebring, Florida, WWTK. Big shout out to everybody listening from there. We're going to continue with the rest of your calls straight ahead. Uh, we have more dissenting opinions. And I just wanted to uh, tease one more story before we uh, hit this break, uh, because there's a study out and it says that artificial intelligence might be the new religion. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right there. I am Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
Countdown. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, and uh, I'm here with so many of our callers tonight, and uh, I'm happy to be with you. Let us uh, continue here. Where do we go now? Let's see. We've got this one. We've got that one. Let's go to Phil, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, KDKA. Go right ahead, Phil. How you doing? Wonderful, thanks. Hello? Um, yeah, I heard you talking about the 32-hour work week, and I just wanted to chime in with my opinion. Um, That's I personally why we're talking. Think it's a good, I personally think it's a, a good idea because the job I have now at a thrift store, that's about what I work, and I've never been happier. I have a good work-life balance. Um, you know, I just I feel it's a it's a good idea, and that's the way I think the country the country should go towards is uh, the 32-hour work week because it seemed like when I worked like eight hours plus, like it would just take take up my whole day. But like working like six six and a half hours, I've got time in the evening to do everything else that I want. So I, I think it's a good idea. And do you think it's a good idea that the government mandate this so that, you know, let's say for the company I work for, for example, uh, or any, any other company, every, everything would stop, right? Because most people work five days. So whatever day of the week they're taking off, let's just say we cut off Fridays, um, weekends would become a little bit longer. Do you think it, it's uh, the appropriate role for the federal government through an act of Congress to to diminish the amount of hours in a work week saying, you know, you can't work more than 32 hours. And if somebody does work that extra eight hours because they want to work on a Friday or they, they need, you know, auto mechanic and you need to get your car fixed on a Friday, um, that guy now has to get overtime, which is going to cost you more when you go to fix your car because they've got to pay overtime and they've got to pass that on to the consumer. Is that the role of government in your opinion? Um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I didn't think about that part of it. Um, uh, to for government to mandate it, I don't know. I guess like, I guess I could see both sides of that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know because mm-hmm. you were saying about thirty-two hour over thirty-two hours would be overtime. Yeah, well, that's what the proposal it's states, like- and and I guess that's the exception that I take to it. Look, I think look, people, if I have a company and and you, Phil, come to me and you go, listen, I currently work thirty-two hours and I like it. I really like it a lot. Then I'll say, you know what, uh-huh. Phil, you're going to work 32 hours. But if somebody else comes to me and says, hey, look, I'm good for a good 40. I can even do 50. I'm not I'm, I'm single I, I, or my kids are big or whatever it is. Um, I, I think mm-hmm. the the business owner, the people who are working, let them make their deal. Right. And and uh, and I get that. And I know there's a current um, law on the books. I just think for the government to come in and just start telling people now you've got to cut your work week. And, and you got to pay people all this extra money in overtime if they're, in fact, going to work um, is, is detrimental. Where does the business get this extra money to pay time and a half? And, and the other side of it is, yeah. let's say the business says, I don't have this money to pay time and a half. Well, guess what? Now the worker is going to lose eight hours off their weekly check. And, and that sucks. I mean, I think we're in an economy right now where everybody needs every last dollar they're getting. And the last thing they want to do is lose eight hours on their paycheck. But I agree. In theory, it's nice if you can work a little less. And, uh, and uh, I work w- weird hours. You know, I'm on the air for three hours and then I prepare all the rest of the time and to, you know, to be prepared to talk about these things and reading stuff. And uh, I, who knows how many hours I end up, but probably work like 50 hours in a week. But, but uh, that's by my choice. And, and I just think people have to be given that option and opportunity to, 
to to do what they want to do and to work as much as they can without, you know, forcing them to work, you know, 75 hours where people are dropping dead like they do in China. You know what I mean, Phil? Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. Big shout out to Phil on KDKA. Uh, Let us continue with our journey straight across America. Let us go to John Vero Beach, Florida, WTTB. Go right ahead, sir. Yes, I'm I'm very concerned about the multiple uh, issues. Uh, Number one, of course, in my mind is is a different veiled and sometimes straight up attacks on many forms of religion. Look what happened with the the, uh, uh, taking away our our rights to worship during the COVID crisis and stuff. But that's item Mm -hmm. one. Item two is I'm, I'm very worried about our borders, our language, our culture which is being systematically destroyed by these open borders. And as a result, I believe that, uh, what is it, four or five train derailments in less than, a, in less than two months, um, I believe that, that there's, there are sleeper cells, possibly an orchestrated uh, attack on our rail systems. Uh, I'm very, very worried about that. that. That shows some sort of a pattern there with all these derailments. Uh, I'm worried about, you know, uh, 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 subversives getting across our borders and setting up sleeper cells within our own our countries. They're trying to destroy us from within already with our children and religion and everything else, you know. I could see how anybody could believe something like that because, you know, you just all you got to do is open your eyes and watch the news. But I can tell you that something I've noticed lately is that there seems to be there always has been a lot of train derailments and they were kind of underreported or not reported uh, in the news. And now that there was a big one with a lot of chemicals attached to it um, being labeled as, you know, the the latest Chernobyl uh, or the modern day Chernobyl, I think now it's it's fascinating that now there's a lot more reporting on these things. And it seems like there's more of them. But when you look at the statistics, there's plenty. And it's kind of like um, I'm going to make, I guess, a crass analogy. And I hope it comes as no offense to anyone. But Jackknife tractor trailer, you know, like when those trucks kind of go over on their side, uh, th- that happens pretty regularly, um, you know, and I don't wish that on anyone, but it does happen pretty regularly. And I know that, you know, other than morning radio, you know, when you're in the car and listening to a traffic report, that's probably the only time you're going to hear, you know, and you're on the 495 and there's a, uh, you know, a jackknife tractor trailer pushing all the cars over to the left lane and, and that's it. But I'm sure it happens at two in the afternoon, at one in the afternoon, but nobody's listening to traffic updates then, so it doesn't it doesn't get reported as often. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. I would hate to think that there's somebody somewhere dressed like a ninja or like Antifa that's out there, you know, doing something, putting railroad spikes in there to uh, derail trains. Now, again, there are environmental terrorists that have done that with the railroad spikes trying to derail chain, trains to, um, you know, eliminate fossil fuels and make a point. They're, they're crazy, these people. They put the spikes in the um, in the trees, you know, they, when they're tree-hugging activities so that they could spark and break the chains on the chainsaws for the lumberjacks to save the trees. So there is a lot of environmental terrorists out there that do crazy things. Uh, but I, I just, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But on the other stuff, yeah, absolutely. They've definitely subverted uh, our educational system. They've definitely subverted our media. And so it wouldn't come as a shock to me that they're now subverting our safety and transportation systems, but I'm just not there yet, John. You know what I mean? Yes, 
Yes, I, I agree. Yeah, and I think we got to take it easy because you get me starting to think like that, and then, shoot, you know, I may never take a train again. <laughs> anyway, I thank you for the call, brother. Thanks for listening from Vero Beach, Florida, WTTB. Uh, let us continue. Let's grab one more before it's time for the break. Let's go to uh, John in Elyria, Ohio, WNIR. Go right ahead, John. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, uh, I can tell you that I've been secular since before I turned 18, 35 years ago. I'm a diehard independent. My views range the entire political spectrum from far left to far right. And I can tell you that it is offensive when I hear people say that seculars have no moral ground. We care about our fellow citizens every bit as much as people of faith do. And now, where did you hear this, this statement about secularists um, not having any morality? Your previous guest. At what point did he say that? I don't remember hearing that. He said that secular he said that secular progressives have no moral ground or no moral basis or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll have to go back to the tape. Uh, I I don't remember hearing that, but yeah, I mean, I guess in response to what you're saying, um, clearly we're not doing our job right in talk radio if we're not offending somebody somewhere, right? So I mean. Kudos to to the guest for getting the job done. Uh, but, yeah, I, I do agree with you. I, I, I think there's many people who say, look, I, I Jesus is not my thing. God is not my thing. But Ten Commandments, totally my thing. You know, minus maybe the thou shalt not have other gods before him. Uh, I don't believe in killing people. I, I believe in honoring your mother and your father. I don't believe in stealing. So I, I, I know many people who are not um, religious per se uh, but are very moral people. And I don't think he's talking about those people. Uh, I think when people make statements like, you know, secular humanists are, you know, pre prevailing in culture, uh, we're talking about people that are adamantly doing things that affect the culture and typically in a negative way, like we've outlined in the first hour and a half of this program tonight. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. The one is it's not mutually exclusive is what I'm saying. Thanks for the call, John. From Elyria, Ohio, WNIR, and there is more to come straight ahead. It's Open Phone America here on America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. 833-4-VALDEZ. 833-4-VALDEZ. We'll be right back. truth in this day and age you oftentimes have to um you have to you're adhering to a higher purpose so that's um a clip from our interview with james o'keefe uh, founder of the new media company o'keefe media group o'keefemediagroup.com and if you missed that interview because you're on a station that maybe didn't carry it at that time of the evening check out the podcast. You can get the podcast. You can listen live. You can check out old episodes. You can even sign up for our newsletter. Everything at richvaldezamericaatnight.com. That's Valdez with an S, richvaldezamericaatnight.com. Make sure you check it out and please subscribe. 
Um, this way, when I go into my meetings with our network executives, uh, they can say, yep, we got more subscribers. You're doing your job, Rich. And if I don't get more subscribers, they yell at me. Oh my gosh, it's so terrible. They start banging on the door. Get those subscriptions. I'm kidding. They're actually wonderful people here. Um, but I want to talk about this story very quickly and then go back to your calls. Um, this child rapist has been sentenced to chemical castration. And I also teased this story about the gods and the AI machine, so we'll t talk about that as well. But uh, this convicted rapist was sentenced to chemical castration and 35 years in prison. Uh, this man will undergo chemical castration after being convicted of a second-degree rape and two counts of molestation of a juvenile. Ryan Clark, 34 years old, was convicted of multiple sex crimes after a confidant came forward and alerted law enforcement of sexual relationships he was having with a child for more than a year. A possible second victim was also discovered. Um, now, I, I always bring this to your attention because I feel like we, we may not talk about it enough and it's important for us to be vigilant and to protect those that are that can't protect themselves. But in looking at this, I, I think to myself, you know, why is it okay to chemically castrate somebody and not actually castrate them? And I don't know if that constitutes cruel or unusual punishment. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that for you all in the audience to, to you know, Google, find out or just opine on. But I, I just find it interesting. And, you know, I never really understood chemical castration, but what I understand it is um, it it destroys testosterone so that you're not able to um, to produce uh, any type of semen that can make a, a child. So that's where the castration angle comes in. And it's supposed to, you know, reduce your libido or eliminate your libido. So um, – I mean, it sounds like a horrible thing for somebody at 35 years old, for sure. But uh, what he's done to these people is that much more horrible. So I don't know if, the, if it's a punishment that even fits the crime, but I'd like your opinion on it. Let us uh, continue with your calls. Let me uh, just see what we got here. Uh, let us go to Council Bluffs, Iowa. KMA, Ron, how are you, Ron? You're on with Rich Valdez. Good evening, Rich. How you doing, buddy? Wonderful, brother. Thank God. Hey, I uh, I spent 14 years on one of the major railroads, and I was an electrician. And uh, I was also a troubleshooter and spent a lot of time talking to the different guys, of course. And I would ride some of the engines uh, out west and going up summits uh, where they would fail if something went wrong. I was uh, Me and a machinist were on the riding in the cab, but just for a short time. But here's here's the problem. When we were there, the rules said you could only pull 100 cars. This last wreck that they had had 217 cars. Wow. First of all, the, the air system on those, uh, the compressors up in the diesel locomotive. And by the way, if you took that diesel engine out of there and put a big rubber band in there, everything else is electric. So uh, let's talk about that air system. You know, there's a quick connect. And what happens is you bring the hoses up and then you just snap them together or twist them together. And there's a rubber gasket in there. Well, now you're going to do that 217 times. I don't think so, because they're all leaking a little bit. So they probably had air back to the first hundred cars. And after that, I am going to guess that the last 117 cars had no brakes. 
And now they don't have a caboose. They don't have a brakeman. They don't have a fireman. So on a caboose, those windows extend away from the side of the caboose. So the brakeman could look out and see on either side when they went around a curb to inspect a train. Well, it's no longer there. And so they, they're missing the equipment they need, and they're missing the staff a, that they need as well? Well, they, no, they're not staffed right. And, you know, I believe uh, what I heard on the news the other night with David Muir. He said that Trump relaxed all the railroad restrictions and some of the rules. Mm-hmm. 100 cars. They, they experimented a couple of times. And the other thing is the knuckles where they hook up and grab. You know, you talk about, you ever notice a slack in those? My God, the slack on 217 cars would probably be 50 feet. I mean, it's what it boils down to. It's unmanageable between the knuckles and the air hoses. No way. No way. And one guy up there and the engineer's got a lot of things to look at. And half the time when I'd climb up in the cab, listen to this, Rich, the, there's a dead man pedal, they call it. they got to have their foot on that all the time. If they don't, if their foot comes off of that, meaning they could have a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, it shuts, it puts automatically puts the brakes on and shuts the engines down to idle. Well, they had what they called a packing hook. And they would jam that packing hook up there and lock the dead man pedal down. I said, what the hell's the matter with you guys? You know, oh, that's just the way we operate. Well, we'd only be on the train for about, or the engines for about 10 or 20 miles to make sure they were working all right when they went up the hill. And then after that, they were on their own. Well, I just can't imagine them doing trying to run 217 cars. And what it all All right, Ron. Yeah, you took two. <laughs> it was a lot. I don't know what it boils down to, but Trump did it. Got it. All right. Let us continue. Uh, let's go to Matt near Moorhead City, North Carolina, WTKF. Go right ahead. Hello, Rich. How are you doing today? today? Good, good. I was I was waiting for, for Ron to get to the point there, and he brought up a lot of good points, but he just kept going, and I didn't know where to, where to get back in. But, uh, man, it's horrible to know that these trains aren't staffed right and that they're they're missing the people and equipment that they need, and they're putting all these cars on, if, if that is in fact the case. Wow, we're in bad shape, and we're probably going to have more derailments. But anyway, go right ahead. I, I agree. That's ridiculous. But my point was, but I'll make it quick, I've been hearing all day long about the, uh, the new investigations into the Biden crime family, including Hunter Biden. Yeah. Uh, you probably heard it, too. So sure, yeah, opinion, we talked about it earlier. Right. In your opinion, do you think anything will be done about this or the same old, same old? Uh, you know, here's my thinking. I do believe something will happen um, to Hunter Biden. I think he'll I mean, he's under investigation. I think he's going to be charged. And um, and I think that'll end there. You know, I don't I don't think the expectation that a lot of people have is is a healthy one. I don't think in in any world. Right. Where any if Rich Valdez is president and one of my children is suspected of a crime, um, maybe, maybe me, because I, I, I tend to lose my head. I might go, 
lock her up, throw away the key. <laughs> that's because that's what my dad always told me. You get locked up, don't call because I'm not coming. But um, <laughs> but I think most normal people, I think most normal people will do something to help their children. And I think most normal people would expect any good, loving father to try to help their children, especially if you have the power to pardon someone. So whatever crime Hunter Biden is convicted of, whether it's tax evasion or violating the um, uh, Foreign Registration Act, uh, FARA, um, Foreign Agent Registration Act, what, whatever it is, uh, there's a money laundering count, I think, as well. What, whatever it is, he will get away with it because his dad is president and he will pardon his son. I have no doubt about it uh, in my mind that that would happen. Uh, I also think that as part of a, of a plea deal, they would probably say, look, we're going to give you a year in jail. Uh, but, you know, we'll do a pretrial intervention. Maybe we'll give you, you know, a year and a half of probation, given the fact that you haven't gotten in trouble since we started this uh, whole thing. And, uh, you know, we're going to make you pay $5 million in a fine. You're going to pay your restitution. You're going to say you're sorry, issue a public statement. Um, and then Biden can go on the campaign trail and say, my, my son paid his debt to society, said he was sorry, made a million. It's no joke, man. That's no joke, Jack. And, you know, he'll do whatever he does and, and we'll move on. Right. I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. I got you, Rick. That's why I wanted your opinion, because you are uh, the best show on late, late night radio. Well, thank you. Thank you. I will take that. I totally will because I, I appreciate it. It's because of great callers and listeners like you guys that we have this forum and, and we're I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Uh, but, yeah, I think ultimately that's that's what happens. Uh, lamentably. Anyway, Matt, thank you for the call. They're telling me I got to take a break here, but we're coming right back to the rest of your calls and more. Uh, don't move a muscle. 833-4-VALDEZ. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right. Study finds says that intelligence may result in new religions. They're talking about artificial intelligence. And we're witnessing this birth of a new kind of religion, they say. In the next few years or even perhaps the next few months, we will see the emergence of different sects, S-E-C-T-S, devoted to the worship of artificial intelligence. The latest generation of AI-powered chatbots trained on large language models have left their early users awestruck and sometimes terrified by their power. There are the same sublime emotions that lie and at the heart of our experience of the divine. Fascinating, right? People already seek religious meaning from very diverse sources. There are, for instance, multiple religions that worship extraterrestrials in their teachings. And earlier, uh, one of our guests talked about how people worship wokeism as a form of religion or leftism, if you will. And the article goes on to talk about uh, the risks of AI worship and not the least of which are it displays a level of intelligence that goes beyond that of most humans. Indeed, it's a knowledge that appears limitless. Number two, it's capable of great feats of creativity. It can write poetry, compose music, generate art in almost any style close to instantaneously. 
it's removed from normal human concerns and needs. It does not suffer physical pain, hunger, or sexual desire. It can offer guidance to people in their daily lives. And number five, it's immortal. So they say. I don't know if I agree with all that. I remember years ago when AI was becoming a thing, there were some small local music stations, radio stations, that were going to um, somebody voice tracking like for multiple stations to going to like an AI bot that would be a voice generated by a machine to announce, you know, like coming up next, we've got, you know, I don't know, uh, the the latest hit from the Bee Gees, you know, if it was an oldie station or something like that. And, um, and they were using, and I'm sure still do use these AI DJs on music radio stations. And I thought then, imagine if they had AI talk radio, you know, like in some sort of a small market or whatever, where they say, hey, you know what, rather than play a rerun, let's give this thing a shot. Just imagine that, right? Just imagine you call in and based on the words that you input, the AI comes back with, well, you know, you're, you're, you're really right. And oh, no, I disagree. Well, thanks for your call. <laughs> you know, I just fascinating. It really is. It really is an interesting concept. Let's uh, continue with your calls before we run out of time. Uh, let us go to Kim in Shields, Michigan, KDKA. Go right ahead, Kim. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hi, Rich. Something you were talking about tonight, I don't know if it was when James O'Keefe was on or something, but you were talking about how the Democrat and the truth gets hidden and stuff like that, you know, and they cover it up and they blame our side for what they do. But it spurred something in my memory. Um, a lot of people don't realize that by the time January 6th rolled around, um, we'd seen two months of voter fraud. And the reason for January 6th was a gathering of people to go to Mike Pence and have him send it back to a half dozen states. And Michigan was one of those states. And there was an obscure line, like in the Constitution, that somebody discovered that um, if there was, like, malfeasance, that the state house in these states could uh, t take the electorates and put it to where it was rightfully supposed to go. And he wouldn't do that. He said he didn't believe, Mike Pence said he didn't believe he had that right. Well, in one of these big bills that the Democrats did, I think it was the last one, the $1.7 trillion giveaway, they put a little obscure line in there, and I don't even think it's legal, that said that, they voided that part of the Constitution. And I just wondered, how come we're not hearing about that? Because the way they did it, it wasn't legal. And they said that President Trump and Pence didn't have the right to recall those electorates and send them back to the state house. Um, how come we're not hearing about that? Do, do you remember all that? I do. Um, here's what where uh, I, I've talked to a number of people. I think I've done a few interviews back then. Uh, with a few people on this topic and, and where it landed for me uh, from what I understood and from what I gathered from the folks I spoke with, with it, this was, this is an uncharted territory. So for either party, right, whether it's uh, for President Trump to say, um, yes, you absolutely have the right. And I'm not saying that he did say that. I'm just making a, a, a case here uh, that, to say you have the right to not accept those electors, send it back to the state and have the state reissue electors. Um, and then you have, um, the vice president's team, who at the time was saying, based on his lawyers, were saying, absolutely not. We don't have that right. There's no legal theory or precedent that says that we do have this right. 
And based on that, we're not doing it. And the exact argument was happening on the other side where they were saying, exactly, there's no precedent for this. So you can't say that you can't do it. You you could go ahead and do it. And I think that's ultimately where that landed, where nobody knows if you can or can't do it. Uh, and it was never tested legally because it never, ever happened. It was just talk. And um, lamentably, that we won't know until that's ever tested again. Thank you, Kim in Shields, Michigan, KDKA. More to come straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Before we wrap, we're going to try and get to the rest of these calls here. Let's see what we go. We go to Bill, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, KDKA. Go right ahead, quickly. Hi, Rich. Hey, man, I'm going to try. I'm going to make. Hi, hi, bud. I'm going to try to make this quick. I'm not a military man. I, 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 uh, Skimmed uh, uh, Vietnam by the skin of my butt. Uh, I mean, I could have been drafted. Okay, I'm not a military man. But listen, this is my idea, and I hate to say this out loud because the Russians could be listening. But, okay, we we lost the drone. You know, Russia Mm -hmm. did their thing. Look, we said we make 100 drones. Only 33%, only one-third of the percent are loaded, and I mean loaded not with a nuclear. So, what weapon. do you think we should do? Loaded, loaded with dynamite. They they would not come in. You got ten seconds, Bill. Go for it. What's your bottom line? They, my bottom line is the Russians are screwing with us. We could screw back with them. I mean, we we don't have any problems. Uh, I don't know what you mean, though. Are you saying we should attack Russia? We should build cheaper drones? What's your bottom line? My bottom line is we send up drones. Uh, we can send up cheap ones. And what do we do with uh, these drones? Take pictures of them, tickle them, bomb them? No, 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 no. Ah, uh, you're killing me, Bill. Two minutes on the radio, you didn't say anything. I love you, man, but next time be faster to the to the punch because everybody's listening, waiting for the punchline, and we've got nothing. Anyway, hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care, good night, and God bless. We'll do it all again tomorrow. It's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Can't wait. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.